Section 27 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Riding Down a Mountain Gunnison City is one of the peculiarities of a mining boom. It spreads out and slops over the plain like a huge camp meeting, but without shape or beauty. The plains there are red and sandy, the trees are not nearer than the foothills, and the city, which claims 5,000 inhabitants, though 3,000 would, no doubt, be more accurate, is composed of a wide area of ground, with scattering houses that look lonely in the midst of the desolation. Mining in Colorado this season has not advanced with the wonderful impetus which characterized it in previous years. Wherever you go, you hear first one reason and then another why good mines are not being worked. There is trouble among the stockholders, a game of freeze-out, lack of capital to put in proper machinery, or excessive railroad freights to pay which virtually paralyzes the reduction of ore owned by men too poor to erect the expensive works necessary to the realization of profit from the mines. Returning from Gunnison City now, you rise at a rate of over two hundred feet to the mile, zigzagging up the almost perpendicular mountain, near the summit of which is the Alpine Tunnel. As you near the tunnel, there is a perpendicular and sometimes even a jutting wall above you, hundreds of feet at your right, while far below you on your left is a yellow streak, which at first you take to be an old mountain trail but which you soon discover is the circuitous track over which you have just come. Near here, while the road was being built, a fine span of horses balked on the grade, and like all balky horses, proceeded to back off the road. The owner got out of the wagon and told them they could keep that thing up if they wanted to, but he could not endorse their policy. They kept backing off until the wagon went over the brink, and then there was a little scratching of loose stones, the kaleidoscope of legs and hoofs, a little rush and rumble, and the world was wealthier by one less bulky team. The owner never went down to see where they went to, or how they lit. He was afraid they would not survive their injuries, so he did not go down there. Later the carrion crows and turkey buzzards indicated where the refractory team had landed, and deep in the mountain gorge the white bones lie amid the wreck of a lumber wagon as monuments of equine folly. On Saturday evening we had the pleasure of riding down the dizzy grade from Hancock, a distance of eighteen miles, at which time we descended a mile perpendicularly in a push-car, with Superintendent Wilbur as conductor and engineer. A push-car is a plain, flat car, about as big as a dining table, with four wheels and nothing to propel it but gravity, and nothing to stop it but a sharpened piece of two-by-four scantling. Hancock is near the Alpine Tunnel, at the summit of the mountains, about 11,000 feet high. Secretary Morgan, Mrs. Morgan, with their little daughter Gertrude, E.A. Slack of the Sun, Frank Clark of the Leader, Superintendent Wilbur and ourself constituted the party. At first, everybody was a little nervous with the accumulating velocity of the car and the yawning abyss below us. But later, we got more accustomed to it, and the solemn grandeur of the green pine-covered canyons, the lofty snow-covered peaks, apparently so near us. 
and the rushing, foaming torrent far below us were all we saw. Like lightning, we rounded the sharp curves where the road seemed to hang over instant destruction, and we held our breath as we thought that, like Dutch Charlie and other great men, only a piece of two-by-four scantling stood between us and death. Again and again, the abrupt curve loomed up ahead, and below us, while we flew along the narrow gauge at such a pace that we were almost sure the car would leave the track before it would round such a point, and each time the two-by-four went down on the drive wheel with a pressure that sent up volumes of blue smoke. It was a wild, grand ride. So wild and grand, in fact, that even yet we wake up at night with a start from a dream in which the same party is riding down that canyon at lightning speed, and Mr. Wilbur, in a thoughtless moment, has dropped his pine brake overboard. Shades of Sam Patch, but wouldn't it scatter the average excurter over southern Colorado if such a thing should happen some day? Why the woods would be full of them, and for years to come— the prospector along Chalk Creek Canyon would find pyrites of editorial poverty and indications of collar buttons and fragments of Archimedean levers and other mementos of the great editorial Hegira of 1882. Corraldom Last May, Sheriff Boswell received a postal card from a man up near Fort McKinney describing a pair of horses that had just been stolen and asking that Mr. Boswell would keep his eye peeled for the thief and arrest him on sight. Last week, the sheriff discovered the identical team with color, brands, and everything to correspond. He told the driver that he would have to turn over that team and come along to the Bastille. The man stoutly protested his innocence and claimed that he owned the team, but Boswell laughed him to scorn and said that, he often got such games of talk as that when he arrested horse thieves. Just as they were going down into the damp corridors, Judge Blair met the criminal, recognized him at once, and called him by name. It seems that he was the man who had originally written Boswell, and, having found his horses, had neglected to inform him. Thus, when he came to town four months afterward, he got snatched. You not only have to call the officer's attention to a larceny in this country, but it is absolutely necessary that you call off the sleuth hound of eternal justice when you have found the property, or you will be gathered in unless you can identify yourself. Boswell's initials are N.K., and now the boys call him Nemesis K. Boswell. Let bald-headed men rejoice. The London Lancet upsets the popular theory that abundant hair is a sign of bodily or mental strength. The fact is, it says, that notwithstanding the Samson precedent, the Chinese, who are the most enduring of all races, are mostly bald. And as to the supposition that long and thick hair is a sign of intellectuality, all antiquity, all madhouses, and all common observation are against it. The easily wheedled Esau was hairy. The mighty Caesar was bald. Long-haired men are generally weak and fanatical, and men with scant hair are the philosophers and soldiers and statesmen of the world. 
Oscar Wilde, Theodore Tilton, and others of the long-haired fraternity, should read these statements with soulful and heart-yearning delight. Will the editor of The Lancet please step over to the saloon opposite the Royal Palace and take something at our expense? Pard, we shake with you. Count us in also. Reckon us along with Caesar and Elijah and Aristotle, please. Though young, we can show more polished intellect to the superficial foot than many who have lived longer than we have. Will the editor of The Lancet please put our name on his list of subscribers and send the bill to us? What we want is a good, live paper that knows something and isn't afraid to say it. Firmness We were pained to see a large mule brought into town yesterday with his side worn away until it looked very thin. It looked as though the pensive mule had lain down to think over his past life, and being in the company of seven other able-bodied mules, all of whom were attached to a government freight wagon going down a mountain, this particular animal, while wrapped in a brown study, had been pulled several miles with so much unction, as it were, that when the train stopped, it was found that this large and highly accomplished mule had worn his side off so thin that you could see his inmost thoughts. When we saw him, he looked as though, if he had his life to live over again, he would select a different time to ponder over his previous history. Sometimes a mule's firmness causes his teetotal and everlasting overthrow. Firmness is a good thing in its place, but we should early learn that to be firm, we need not stand up against a cyclone till our eternal economy is blown into the tops of the neighboring trees. Moral courage is a good thing, but it is useless unless you have a liver to go along with it. Sometimes a man is required to lay down his life for his principles, but the cases where he is expected to lay down his digester on the altar of his belief are comparatively seldom. We may often learn a valuable lesson from the stubborn mule and guard against the too protuberant use of our own ideas in opposition to other powers against which it is useless to contend. It may be wrong for giant powder to blow the top of a man's head off without cause, but repeated contests have proved that even when giant powder is in the wrong, it is eventually victorious. Let us, therefore, while reasonably fixed in our purpose, avoid the display of a degree of firmness which will scatter us around over two school districts and confuse the coroner in his inquest. Put in a Sump the president of the North Park and Vandalia Mining Company not long ago got a letter from the superintendent which closed by saying that everything was working splendidly, the ore body was increasing, and the quality and richness of the rock improving with every foot. He also added that he had constructed a sump in the mine. The president, having spent most of his life in military and political affairs, had never found it necessary to use a sump, and so he didn't know to a dead moral certainty what it was that the superintendent had put in. He hoped, however, that the expense would not cripple the company, and that by handling it carefully they might escape damage from an explosion of the sump at an unlooked-for time. He proceeded, however, to examine the unabridged, and found that it meant a cistern, which is constructed at the bottom of a mine for the purpose of collecting the water, and from which it is pumped 
the president, having posted himself, concluded to go and have a little conversation with one of the directors, who was a druggist in the city, and see if he knew the nature of a sump. The president, in answer to the questions of the director relative to the latest news from the mine, said that it was looking better all the time, and that the superintendent had constructed a sump. The director never blinked his eye. He acted like a man who has lived on sumps all his life. "'Do you know what a sump is?' asked the president. "'Why, of course, anybody knows what a sump is. It's a place where they collect water from a mine and pump it from, to free the mine from water. A man who don't know what a sump is don't know his business. That's all I got to say.' The president looked hurt about something. He hadn't looked for the conversation to assume just exactly the shape that it had. Finally, he said, "'Well, you needn't point your withering sarcasm in me. I know what a sump is. I just wanted to see whether a man who had been in the pill business all his life knew what a sump was. I knew you claimed to know almost everything, but I didn't believe you was up on that word. Now, if it's a proper question, I'd like to know just how long you have been so all-fired fluent about mining terms. Then the director said that there was no use in putting on airs and swelling up with pride over a little thing like that. He, for one, didn't propose to crow over other men who had not had the advantages that he had, and he would be frank with the president and admit that an hour ago he didn't know the difference between a sump and a certiorari. It seems that a passenger who had come in on the same coach that brought in the superintendent's letter had casually dropped the remark to the director that Smith had put a sump in the endomile, and the director had lit out for a dictionary without loss of time, so that when the two great miners got together, they were both proud and confident. Each was proud because he knew what a sump was, and confident that the other one didn't know. End of section 27